Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in and know... As always, that you are welcome to The Nook and to Tales to Terrify. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and I am the caregiver to Mahler, the now two-eyed ink-black cat of The Nook. Two-eyed ink-black cat, you ask, as you strip your outer selves and slip in with treats and chums. Well, yes, about two weeks ago... Just as the temperatures were dropping into negative double-digit degrees Fahrenheit, Mahler presented with a single golden eye on one side of his head. On the other was just a thickly wet gelatinous ooze, a squint, and a swollen brow ridge. He looked like Terry Malloy after Johnny Friendly's goons had worked him over, poor little guy. Well... After finally getting him to the creature doctor and after four times daily applications of a medicinal drip followed by ameliorating treats for the last week and a half, Mahler is again a two-eyed, ink-black cat of the nook. Two golden eyes. Tonight will be a kind of quiet show for me. I'm taking a bit of a break for the next couple weeks call it a working vacation. I've got writing to catch up upon. I've let deadlines pile up. And, well, there's no reason to burden you with the details of my indolence. I'll be spending the next few weeks writing. Oh, the world is a lucky place for that. Before I go, however, we have tonight. And, ah, tonight will be grand. We shall take it 
as it comes, and what comes first is that which was promised but whose arrival was delayed for two weeks by failed hard drives at all. Tonight, Kevin Lucia returns with Horror 101, and it is a good one. They're all good. Come on, Larry. I turn you over to Kevin now, the author of Things Slip Through from Crystal Lake Publishing, for his Horror 101 for this month. Mr. Lucia? He seemed to be standing on the side of a road, somewhere out in the country. It was night. Ahead of him was a stretch of bare earth. Beyond it was empty space, where the land sloped away. And then, to David's astonishment, something began to push its way up through the rocky soil. Clods of earth lifted, broke apart, and slid down its roof. The earth was giving birth to a house. David watched in fascination as a two-story frame structure arose, complete with chimney, front porch, and fresh blue paint. But instead of clapboards, the house had scales like a reptile, and set into one wall, staring at David, was the huge protruding compound eye of some gigantic insect. Then blood began to seep from the raw earth around the foundation. David saw that the earth was bleeding. There came a crash of thunder. A heavy rain began to fall, trying to wash the blood away. But the house kept rising, thrusting and tearing its way out of the stony ground. The blood was flowing more quickly now, welling from the concrete foundation. The house had risen to its full height, and the earth it had merged was no longer soil but human flesh. Blood was spurting from the socket of the foundation, washing across the road to where David stood. He tried to scream, but his breath made no sound. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales of Terrify. I, again, am your host, Kevin Lucia, and for this month's podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. I've commented several times in the series about the, the power of the haunted house myth, or the haunted house trope. You know, that uh, there's just something deep in the human psyche about having a place that's supposed to be sanctuary, it's supposed to be home, it's that place where we're supposed to be vulnerable, uh, or like in the case of Ann River Siddons, the house next door, you know, it's supposed to be a place of domestic... I don't want to say rule, but it's a place that we build, we live in, we lower our guard in. It's supposed to be home, it's supposed to be safe, so there's a lot of power, it seems like, in this story about the haunted house, the ghost uh, house, the cursed house, or a house that turns against us, or a house that suddenly becomes alive, or a house that's a parasite, or a house that has sentience that might be malevolent. This story just keeps getting repeated, you know, throughout the generations. You know, every small town has a spook house that the kids all have to go to, um, and there are just so many countless stories about houses or buildings or, you know, even hospitals, things like that, that are haunted. But I thought it would be interesting for this episode to look at possibly one of the most famous, quote-unquote, real-life haunted houses, the Amityville Horror and how this incident spawned books and movies and documentaries. And we're not going to spend any time debating the authenticity of the claims 
of the Amityville Horror and the Lutzes and the DeFeos. There's so many, uh, so much footage out there in media uh, that does that, and I'm going to provide some links for those go along with this podcast. But what we're going to look at how interesting it is that this incident, whether it was fabricated, whether it was real, or as uh, the, the theory that was proposed in My Amityville Horror, it's a movie that can be found on Netflix. It's, it's an account of uh, Daniel Lutz, the steps, oldest stepson. The theory that was proposed that, come to find out, George Lutz was very much into the occult, like like really steeped into the occult, into like transcendental meditation and levitation and, and things like that. And the th- interesting theory that was proposed in my Amityville horror is that maybe, maybe this house did have something wrong with there's something there that had been lying dormant, and because George Lutz was into all that stuff, he kind of jarred it loose. You know, that was it's a very interesting theory. But whatever the case there, you know, we're not going to argue that or try to debate that here, but we're just going to look at this interesting phenomenon. And the Amityville horror is by no means the only one. You know, recently we had The Conjuring in the theaters. Uh, there's also a Connecticut uh, haunting and so many other stories about these real-life uh, haunted houses. But I think probably by far, if folks haven't heard of the other ones, everyone's heard of the Amityville Horror, which again, power of that haunted house, cursed house story. We're just going to look at some of the uh, interesting books that have cropped up you know, in the wake of this, and how, in some ways, Jay Anson's novel, you know, novel novelist career, although it's pretty short, uh, was sparked by this incident. And again, I think it just it's interesting that it shows the the power of this haunted house myth, you know, on the human psyche, especially the American psyche, that does something like this that may or may not have been a hoax. And even though ninety eight percent of the people we probably talk to probably think, yeah, it was probably a hoax. It still works on you. It still kind of has this, you know, this staying power. And that's what we're going to look at uh, in this month's podcast. So if we don't know the story, here it is in brief. In December of 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, a suburban neighborhood in Amityville, Long Island, New York. Got the house dirt cheap. They didn't realize until they were just closing on the houses at 13 months before Ronald DeFeo Jr., and shot and killed his entire family in the house in a really weird and bizarre incident. And again, I'm going to post links to this. We're not going to debate the authenticity of the event itself, but uh, I've got some very interesting YouTube links I'm going to post for you later. So they bought the house dirt cheap. They only stayed in the house 28 days. Afterward, they left, you know, claiming that the house was haunted and claiming all these paranormal occurrences that had terrorizing them while they stayed in the house. Now, this incident ended up creating a media frenzy. Talk shows, investigative reports, a team of journalists and psychics ended up investigating the house afterward, and you had uh, you know, conflicting reports where a lot of the journalists were like, you know, hey, there's nothing here, but a lot of the uh, psychics claimed that, ooh, there's something here, there's some malevolent presence. And an interesting note, as on record, there has been no psychic phenomenon ever reported since the incidences with the Lutzes. So that's kind of an interesting little nugget there. But when you go through the reports, which again, we're not going to necessarily go through all of those here for this episode, what's interesting is the Lutzes 
initial, whether it was faked or not. And if it was faked, then it was pretty um, pretty canny move. Initial reluctance to talk about it at all or to, to sensationalize the issue at all and that they didn't want to go back to the house. They initially downplayed a lot of the media coverage that followed. Of course, the problem with that is the following book deal, the following movie deal, which they benefited from financially, even though they then later claimed that the book deal took liberties with their story and the movie took liberties with their story. But then so many contradicting elements started to pop up. Then you found out that while they were living there, George Lutz was having financial problems with his job. So, you know, this cast a whole aura of scam, not scam, over the whole incident. But still... This one incident, whatever happened, and, and there's something very powerful there with that story, for whatever reason. I mean, there's plenty of other real-life uh, haunted house. I mean, our, our entire, I want to say, our American culture is permeated with these stories. This one incident ended up generating 11 movies, and there may be even more, probably not even counting the uh, directed video and direct on Netflix movies, 11 videos nine novelizations, and who knows how many more are on the way. Uh, so there's certainly something about this situation that captivated you know, our attention. And looking at the first, first issue, or the first book of the night, The Amityville Horror, A True Story by Jay Anson. And again, what's interesting about this is here you have this situation, whether or not it was real or not, or faked. It ends up launching a very brief novelist career for Jay Anson. Jay Anson was a writer up until that point. He'd written nothing but documentaries and short, you know, short films that were all nonfiction documentaries. Suddenly he has this opportunity to write a novel. Now, you have a true story stamped on there, and the Lutzes did tell him their story. But even in several interviews afterward, Jay Anson just right up and said, suddenly... Who, the guy who had been nothing but a documentary writer, a nonfiction writer before then, Jay Hansen said several times, hey, I'm a novelist. You know, I make stuff up for a living. So that was an interesting tidbit. Um, as for the novel itself, I'm going to come right out and say that for anyone who, who's a horror fan, who likes horror, you know, fitting into this whole haunted house with the house, you know, strand that we've been working our way along, the Amityville Horror is a heck of an effective book. I have to say. Now, I do have to admit, the prose is not the finest in the world. It reads a lot, kind of very hackish. It's not what you'd call delectable prose or anything like that. And really, when you think about it, how much of a plot is there, we're very unsure how much this plot really did occur, was fabricated. I think the strange thing about it, and again, this is what, this is almost a precursor in book form of, say, the Blair Witch phenomenon or all these found footage movies that we have today in the horror genre, just because it has this stamp on it, a true story. And, and even for me, the Lutz phenomenon is, you know, 20, 30 years in the past. It's not like I'm reading this book at the same time watching it, it unfold on TV. But I think just for me, and again, probably depends on your suspense of disbelief and your imagination, even reading this book, I found this book to be far more frightening and chilling in its own way than some other great novels I've read. I think just because in the back of your head it has that 
that aura of authenticity stamped on it just because it's a, a true story. Even though you're reading it and you're in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wow, that's probably faked it and everything like that. This probably isn't real. You know, there's something there that, at the very least, as a novel, you, you can very easily see why it became a bestseller and went through, you know, multiple reprintings and things of that nature. Because there is something that kind of grabs you by the guts there. And, and hey, if the Amityville horror had never happened and, and or it hadn't been sensationalized and this book was still written like this, this would be uh, definitely a pulp a classic in its own way. Uh, because it definitely grabs you by the guts and really twists you a little bit. And you're like, when you're hearing about the demonic possession and the sightings of the ghost, and then you lay in the DeFeo story as well, and all the things that happen, even like a, like a demonic pig and things like that. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I'm getting chills just myself kind of recounting all this stuff to you. It definitely is very effective. It's very effective in its own way, whether it's a piece of fiction or uh, you know a, a novelization of quote-unquote true recorded events. And also, what is interesting is how the Amityville Horror a true story, spawns four sequel books entirely fictional written by John J. John G. Jones. Now, I didn't get a chance to read these books themselves, but again, it's very interesting. The power of this story that may be real, maybe not, then spawns a whole imagined, fictionalized sequel, four additional books. And there are three other books, one of which I have to say I had the misfortune of reading. There are several books written by Hans Holzer. Again, a parapsychologist documentary uh, writer turned fiction writer. This is going to be one of those rare times in Horror 101 when I do not recommend a book. But in my pursuance of this episode, I picked up The Secret of Amityville by Hans Holzer. The tagline is revealed at last, the evil force that doomed so many to a hideous fate. And of course, we've got the by now classic portrait of the Amityville house on the cover with those glowing window eyes and this like ghostly Indian face above it. And again, uh, the secret of Amityville, I'm going to go out there and say this is one of the few times in Horror 101 that I will not recommend this book. I myself only got about halfway through it. Ironically enough, it's one of the very first books. I think that Leisure started putting out in its horror line. And the idea of the secret of Amityville, which again, you know, when you're talking about this incident that occurred, the way it may or may not have been true, and the incident with the DeFeos, even though there were no other supernatural occurrences of any kind that were ever, ever reported before or after uh, this uh, incident with the DeFeos and the Lutzes, the secret of Amityville poses that there's been this hidden gem that I believe was imported from, like, the Mayan Indians or something like that that's, you know, cursed, and pirates basically landed there and buried it down a well because they're using the story of, in the Amityville Horror, a true story, there's this room that uh, George Lutz supposedly discovers that there's, like, a subterranean well leading up to it. So Hans Holzer takes that idea and runs with it and, you know, supposes this idea of this evil crystal that's hidden down there that's possibly Mayan Indians and Native American Indian spirits get involved. 
quite honestly, by the time I slogged through the backstory, uh, the contrived backstory of the pirates, I, I kind of retired this book. But again, there's three more of these books uh, written by Hans Holzer. There's The Secret of Amityville. There's The Amityville Curse. Then there's Murder in Amityville. And ironically enough, Hans Holzer goes on to write books called The Houses of Horror, White House Ghosts. So it's interesting how this uh, this incident uh, attracts people who suddenly want to use it and become writers. Again, that the power of that haunted house story. Now, Jay Anson's career continued to another novel called 666 by Jay Anson, which, predictably enough, is about a haunted and cursed house. And it's actually a pretty interesting premise. There's a house, 666 is his you know, mailing number, where these terrible murders occur. And we get the idea that the owner of the house is, well, predictably 666, the owner of the house is Satan himself, and actually moves the house around, which, again, I'm not sure how realistic this is. I have heard stories of moving companies being able to pick up an entire house and move it. Um, but, but that's the scenario, is that suddenly this house will be built in this area needing development, of course, is 666. It's not long before some twisted murder happens there. Usually a crime of passion where there's adultery involved or someone's been seduced and someone else finds out about it and then murders the spouse. And the house is mysteriously moved. So in the case of 666, that's what happens. And it's, it's, it's a little bit different. It's much different than... The Amityville Horror. I, I don't know the critical reception of uh, 666, but I will say, it, just because now we know that Jay Anson is a novelist and writing his novel, which again, ironically, Amityville Horror, he writes about a haunted house, and inspires him to write his own haunted house book. It doesn't have that same gripping sense that the Amityville Horror had. Again, there's something about that tag of, this is a true story kind of gets you a little bit. Uh, 666 is more of a fun, pulpy read, uh, kind of uh, like a good 80s uh, horror, really corny, cheesy 80s horror film. You know, it has that uh, that vibe to it. It tells us the story of Keith and Jennifer Olsen. Keith is a contractor, um, you know, builds houses and works on them for a living. Okay. Jennifer is an interior decorator. And, of course, predictably enough, they live out in the country, and one day, boom, a house has been moved there, and you know, Keith is, an, is hired on a course. His contracting business is maybe only being, you know, only been doing okay, has not been doing that well as of late. So he's uh, hired to come in and refurbish the house. And of course, this house is six six six. Even though, even though it doesn't fit in the, 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 their numbers, it's uh, postal numbers. Here's it's now house, you know, six six six. And he's hired by some independent third party that never sees him or calls him, but just leaves him envelopes full of cash. So he and his guys end up going and uh, refurbishing it. And right away, he notices strange feelings when he's walking around in the room and or walking around in the house, uh, hidden panels, and he finds some, you know, mysterious iron pipe running up all the way through the house, almost like it's like a gigantic lightning rod, and he, he finds this Latin uh, inscription written in it, and there's this big window that, of course, is ruby red, um, and if a light shines just right, it has three figurines in it, and it, it forms this panorama that looks like 
jealous husband, wife, and a spurned lover. And of course, that is the center of our story, because this house travels from town to town and seduces people inside and ends up you know, uh, inciting marital strife, and there's always, at the, at the end of it, there's a murder. Uh, and of course, this Keith and uh, Jennifer have a friend, David Carmichael, who's kind of a rich art dealer, fine antiquities dealer who lives in New York, whose wife passed away several years ago, and there's this undercurrent of tension. This was, was nicely done. It was that Keith and Jennifer have a good relationship, but Keith is a little insecure. He's just kind of a regular guy working with his hands. And David Carmichael, who doesn't necessarily have any designs on Jennifer, but because Jennifer's an interior decorator, and David Carmichael is his fine arts, antiquities, you know, uh, furniture uh, guy. He's suave and attractive, and they always have him over for dinner, and maybe Keith, even before the house gets there, which, again, the idea is, is you know, whoever owns this house, whether it's Satan, Bazilibub, or whatever, very adept at picking out families to torment next. So, kind of Keith and, and Jennifer and David are kind of ripe for this manipulation. And David ends up looking for a house, so then again, he's, he starts getting manipulated, um where uh, one day he comes home to his apartment in his apartment because his wife was killed several years earlier in a, in a terrible break-in. And he comes home from his apartment one day and the apartment is trashed and uh, blood's, blood spread all over the place. And he um, is uh, starts thinking, well, maybe I ought to move out of town. And something starts working on him and he feels the need to start checking out this new house, 666, and maybe he should rent it for the summer. You know, there's, there's, there's some contrived parts of that plot there um, that he should rent this house for the summer. But when he ends up walking around and looking around the house, he finds this strange Roman coin, and uh, he takes it home to have it appraised, and he starts having these visions. And, and basically the whole idea is he's being goaded into moving into this house so that you know whatever demonic forces are responsible for the house being there, the scenario on the panorama with the jealous husband and the flirtatious wife and the, the spurned lover can play out in all of its so that Keith can end up being you know, sucked in there, and his wife sucked in there, and then and David sucked in there, and that, you know, so the murder can can take place as it's taken place in so many other places. Now, throughout the course of this novel, of course, Keith begins to suspect something's wrong. The unmarked, you know, envelopes of money, mysterious third party, 666, where is this house coming from? And he eventually does his research and discovers of this, you know, discovers this murder uh, incident several months before at a 666, you know, at a house that, that you know, then mysteriously disappears and is moved by an independent third contractor developer. So he ends up getting on the trail of it, but again, demonic forces intrude. Ironically enough, very similar to the Amityville Horror, where the Lutzes, you know, whether they did or didn't reportedly contact the family priest, um, our, ner- our main character, our main character is Keith, uh, he contacts his brother, who's a priest, and tries to get in contact with him several times and brings him out to discuss it, and, and that just doesn't, you know, the demonic forces get in the way and that fails. The ending of this is a bit rushed, you know, uh, it feels a bit, and again, it, this, this is a novel, ironically enough, ironically enough, the prose in this is much 
better. You you feel more like you're reading a novel. You know, and it, it certainly doesn't, you know, read badly by any means, even though it's not, again, it's not the, the finest prose you're going to read in the world. It reads better as a novel than the Amityville Horror does, but it still, again, it lacks that kind of, again, whether or not it's that, 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 again, depending on your suspension of disbelief, whether or not it's that, that authenticity of the Amityville Horror working on you in the back of your head or not. It works. It's a little bit less effective, uh, and the ending's a little bit rushed, unfortunately, predictably, despite everything that's laid out for us. And, and that's probably, again, uh, that's why it kind of falls in that era, area of uh, 80s uh, pulp horror, because you really don't ever achieve... Keith comes off as being very immature and kind of a, kind of a pissy, and Jennifer and David are just kind of ignorant of the forces that are moving them around. It's almost like they deserve their fate at the end. And there's so many warning signs thrown up that really the end is pretty predictable. They end up falling victim to the house. And of course, the house gets moved to a new avenue. And a new, in our, in our epilogue, a new family moves in. Uh, and how wonderful this new house of theirs is. You know, so, um, and ironically enough, um, it's the uh, Lieutenant D'Amiglio, uh, I believe. Um, who was a lieutenant that was uh, originally involved in David Carmichael's, the death of David Carmichael's wife, um, and their hold. <laughs> now suddenly they're going to fall victim to the house uh, that killed uh, Carmichael and, uh, his, and, and the Olsons. So this house lives on to claim more victims, and whether or not he's planning on writing another one, uh, I don't know. Um, there was one listed on the Wikipedia page. I think this may have, you know, 666 was Jay Anson's uh, only uh, foray, additional foray into uh, fiction. In wrapping things up for this month's episode uh, on the Amityville Horror and its phenomenon, and, and again, like everything else we've discussed here at Horror 101, you know, how can we truly touch on the, the scope of these things in, you know, 25 minutes, half an hour? A very valuable supplement, um, two two supplements that I found uh, very very valuable in in pursuing this episode. Uh, though again, I wanted to focus more on the media that had been inspired by this incident and the incident itself uh, is a YouTube video uh, called I believe it's called Real Amityville Horror, which I'm going to post the links for. And the movie is on Netflix. I don't know if it's on Amazon Prime. It is also on YouTube. You can you know, buy for 2 or $8 or something like that. My Amityville Horror, which catches up with uh, Daniel Lutz down the road, George Lutz's oldest stepson. And really, My Amityville Horror is a, is a very touching, almost sad examination of the fallout of this whole thing whether or not the Lutzes uh, fabricated the story, whether or not George Lutz was dabbling into things that he shouldn't have been. The fallout is this young, well, not not young, but the, the fallout is the young, angry man that Daniel Lutz became. And, and years later, the, the internal demons he's had to fight. Um, so both of these are, are very interesting additional sources of media uh, that... Um, that uh, had lots of different introspective takes on the whole situation with the Lutzes and the DeFeos, you know. And whereas in the, the real Amityville horror, again, kind of retreads the mystery of the scenario, 
uh, especially the picture of that creepy kid that everyone, I'm sure everyone's seen that picture. In fact, that picture's so creepy, I'm not even going to post it. I was going to repost it on Facebook and Amy, the uh, Horror 101 uh, Facebook site. I'm like, eh, I don't think so. But I think everybody knows that site of that picture of that unidentified creepy kid that was in the the Amityville house during their investigation. But my Amityville horror, again, is more of kind of like a sad, touching, um, you know, look at how this whole sensation really uh, not ruin this kid's life because uh, now as, as an adult, Daniel Lutz has come to terms with it and he has a family of his own and a successful job, uh, but how it really kind of, you know, tore his life apart and he had to put it back together again in the wake of being, you know, known by everyone as that Amityville horror kid. So th- those are two definite uh, recommendations over any of the movies by far. You know, those two uh, documentaries are right there are well worth a viewing. In addition, I'd also like to recommend um, a book that I came across in my local, again, used bookstore, because so much of Horror 101 has been me discovering things in the out-of-the-way places. So I found, again, this is probably just a small example of so many other books uh, that were probably inspired by Amityville Horror or situations like a, a small little paperback called Houses of Horror by Richard Weiner, who is the co-author of Haunted Houses and More Haunted Houses. 1408, Mike Enslin, anyone? Anyway, it's an interesting little paperback, which I'll post a link to again on Amazon, that basically just goes through a bunch of uh, haunted house stories. Some of them are just ghost stories, but a lot of them are haunted house stories about your classic haunted house uh, cases, and he would go and investigate them and write them down. And again, I just couldn't couldn't help reading this book and slipping into uh, Mike Enslin's uh, narrative voice you know, by John Cusack from the movie 1408, because this is clearly you know what Stephen King was aiming at when he wrote 1408, and this book is like a Mike Enslin book. Um, but it's an interesting little, when you were talking about non-fiction recounts of, of haunted houses, this, this book is an interesting little tidbit. But anyway, once again, thanks for listening. Uh, this is Kevin Lucia signing off of Horror 101. We have a Facebook page uh, studying the horror genre. Please add us. I post things there uh, occasionally. And until next time, keep reading. Thanks for listening again. Thank you, Kevin. You know, I am glad to hear this. I had only seen the rather overheated 1979 film version of the Amityville Horror. I'm glad to know there is something of a decent horror tale that came before. And, of course, I will have to take a peek at my Amityville Horror. Glad to know it's on Netflix. And now, fiction. Tonight, our tale to terrify is particularly poignant to writers, I imagine. Writers of all sorts who spend their days in agonies of memory and panics of detail as they grab those close and dear to them and drop them, as the chum of our writer character will say in tonight's story, into the glop there to be slurped by it. Tonight's tale-teller is Mr. Tim Wagoner, an old friend of Tales to Terrify. You'll remember Tim's very short piece, Unwoven, in one of your very early visits to the Nook. I'm sure you remember his longer piece, Long Way Home. And back in show 39, Tim allowed us the use of a story which has now become 
what is probably my favorite zombie tale of all time, Do No Harm. Here, before we hear the tale, are a few things about Tim. At age five, he made his own comic book version of King Kong vs. Godzilla. That should be a pretty quick comic. Godzilla, one stomp, Kong's gone. That's it. Oh, well. A few years later, he began selling professionally, and since that, he's published more than 30 novels and three short story collections. He's done articles on writing for Writer's Digest and Writer's Journal. He teaches creative writing at Sinclair Community College and in Seton Hill University's Master of Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction program. I will let you wander the Amazon bookshelves to find titles of his work, but go a-wandering after you listen to Tim Wagoner's chilly winter's tale, Portrait of a Horror Writer. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You stare at the laptop screen, trying to come up with a good opening line, one that's suggestive without being obvious, atmospheric without being vague. No, it was a dark and stygian night. Slow minutes pass, but nothing comes, and now even dark and stygian night is starting to look good. You decide to try beginning with an image. It's worked for you in the past, so instead of focusing on words, you now sift through pictures in your mind. Odd snatches of daily life that impressed themselves upon you over the years. A single bloody sock you found at the end of your driveway one afternoon. Perhaps thrown out of a window by someone in a passing car? A purple rubber dildo attachment for a vibrator you almost ran over with the mower one spring. Though how it got there and what happened to the vibrator itself you haven't a clue. A replica of an electric chair bolted to the roof of a frat house down by the university. You read about it in the paper, clipped out the picture that accompanied the article, and stuck it in your idea folder, though you've long since lost track of it. 
It's probably packed away in one of the boxes stored in the attic after you moved a few months ago, along with dozens of old computer disks and printouts containing the text of far too many stories and novels that will never be published, but which you can't bear to dispose of. Too bad. That folder sure would come in handy today. You glance at the clock on the dining room wall behind you. You know better than to set up your laptop where you can see the clock while you write, or in this case, try to write. 10.48. It won't be long before your wife and three-year-old daughter get home from Tuesday morning playgroup. Have you really been sitting here struggling to get something down since they left at nine? It seems hard to believe, but clocks don't lie. Wait, maybe they do. There's an idea that just might... The initial rush of enthusiasm is gone before it has a chance to build. Stupid thought. Not even worth jotting down and sticking in the idea folder. That is, if you knew where the damn folder was to stick anything into. Maybe another cup of coffee. You lift your hands away from the computer and notice how they tremble, and decide that you've had enough coffee for now. How about a walk, then? A little exercise to get the old creative juices flowing. Besides, you've been meaning to do something about the spare tire around your middle. No time like the present, right? You leave the laptop on. It's not like you're going to be gone that long. Get up from the dining table and walk through the living room, glancing out the picture window on your way to the hall closet. It's been snowing on and off the last few days. The ground is covered by white. Some flakes are drifting down, but the snowfall is light and will probably taper off to nothing soon. Good. You've never much liked snow. You put on your boots and your winter coat. You decide to do without a hat. You hate the way your hair gets all matted down when you wear one. Open the door and step outside. The air is cold and crisp, and when you inhale, your sinuses throb. You figure they'll adjust to the temperature soon enough, and you take your keys out of the pocket of your jeans. Lock the door. This is a safe, suburban neighborhood, but still, you never know. Put the keys away. Turn and start down the terraced front walk. You shoveled it off yesterday evening, but enough snow fell during the night that it's covered again. You know you should probably clear the new stuff away but you don't want to put off your writing. Yes, yes, you know that going for a walk is an excuse for not working, but at least there's a chance you might really come up with an idea while you're out. If you stop to shovel snow, you won't even have the illusion that you're still working. You make your way down the walk carefully, the corrugated tread of your boots giving you plenty of traction. Snowflakes descend lazily around you, and as they fall, you fancy you hear tiny shrill screams. A flake lands on your cheek, an instant of cold on your skin, and then it starts to melt. You imagine the snowflake isn't really a snowflake, that it's some small creature that's only masquerading as snow, one of hundreds, perhaps thousands, that are falling from the sky, and now that it's made contact, it's not melting, but rather seeping into your flesh, entering your bloodstream, riding the surging tides of your circulatory system toward your heart, or perhaps your brain. You smile. Not bad. You might be able to work with it. Feeling vindicated in your choice to go for a walk, you continue, dozens of tiny screams echoing in your ears as the snow keeps falling. You slip your hands into your coat pockets, you hate wearing gloves, and step off the curb into the street. Your house is on the end of a cul-de-sac which borders a small park, open fields, a half a dozen picnic tables, a swing set, and slide. Sometimes in the morning, looking out the window and sipping coffee as you try to wake up, you see people walking their dogs in the park. 
One woman always brings three small white poodles, sometimes dressed in matching green and blue sweaters. You hate poodles. Yappy little things with roomy eyes that shiver and squirt pee when they get excited. No poodle woman today, though. Probably too cold out for her precious darlings. Maybe, maybe the poodles are really the masters, and they're taking their human for a walk? You grimace and shake your head. Been done a billion times. Keep walking. Keep thinking. As you head across the cul-de-sac toward the park, you glance at the house across the street, a ranch like yours, with only minor variations in color and design to mark it as any different, and you see a sale pending sign. You stop and look at it, thinking that this is the fifth time the sign has gone up. Four times before, for sale has been replaced by sale pending, and four times the latter has come down and the former returned. You don't know the owners well, an old couple whose kids are grown and long moved away, but you guess that there's something wrong with their house that's revealed when potential buyers have an inspection done. Maybe the basement leaks and there's water damage, something like that. Still, these flip-flopping signs seem vaguely sinister. Maybe there's another reason why sale pending never lasts long. Maybe the owners aren't so much interested in selling their house as they are in attracting people to come look at it. And once these folks are inside... A sigh escapes your lips, expelled breath turning to curls of white steam in the frigid air. The idea is nothing but a variation on the Venus flytrap scenario. A story structure so old, it was probably a cliché back when primitive tellers of tales squatted around campfires and told their stories with grunts and gestures. In the house, a window curtain that was held open a few inches is released, and the fabric falls back into place, concealing whoever, or whatever, was watching you. You look at the window a moment longer before shrugging and continuing toward the park. You step off the asphalt of the cul-de-sac, which has been plowed clean by city workers, and onto the snow-covered field of the park, snowflakes still drifting down around you, screaming in their faint, high voices. The top coating of snow is hard, and it resists your weight for a second before collapsing under your boot with a satisfying crunch. Before you, the spread of white is unbroken, save for a single line of tracks left by something with long, thin toes that end in claw points. Raccoon, you guess. You don't even bother to imagine what else might have made the tracks. It's not worth the effort. A line of trees, branches bare save for a dusting of snow clinging to the top side of the wood, begins a dozen yards off to your right. You remember how excited your wife was when you first looked at your house, back when it had a for sale sign in front. It'd be so great living next to a park. Jenny would have so much fun running through the field, swinging, sliding, exploring the woods. It's not that big of a park, you said, knowing that it didn't matter what you thought, that she'd fallen in love with the house and the park, and you were going to buy it. Despite the fact that there were no streetlights here, and no lights in the park either, anyone could approach from the dark woods, make their way across the unlit field and the empty cul-de-sac, up the driveway, which is illuminated at night, if poorly, by a low-wattage fluorescent bulb, around the back of the house where the bedroom windows were, where Jenny's window was. The thought of anyone trying to get into your daughter's room makes you shudder, but you don't even consider using it for your story. Unfortunately, it's a news item that's all too common. Besides, some things hit too close to home to write about. Coward. That's exactly what you should be writing about. Fuck off, you mutter, and keep walking. You notice the raccoon tracks veer off toward the woods and that their shapes change the closer they come to the tree line, becoming larger, gaining extra toes and longer claws. Something rustles among the trees, something big, and do you hear heavy, labored breathing? 
You're tempted to look more closely, maybe even walk over to investigate. But why bother? Whatever you'd find probably wouldn't be worth writing about. You can see the next street over from here, which ends in a cul-de-sac just like yours, and you decide to head for it. No particular reason, it's just some place to go. You keep crunching across the field, leaving a line of tracks behind you. You imagine the tracks filling in until the snow is smooth and unbroken once more. Imagine another pair of tracks appearing next to yours, even though you're alone. The images drift away as easily as they came, no more substantial or significant than a solitary flake of melting snow. You reach the other side of the park and step over the curb onto asphalt. The home before you, while in the same basic position relative to its cul-de-sac as yours, facing your house like a mirror image, is yet another ranch, but it's smaller than most around here, the brick painted white, the roof and shutters black, and the front doors open, not wide open, less than a foot probably, but it strikes you as odd. It's far too cold to leave a door open for any length of time. You've only been outside for a few minutes, but already your ears are numb and your nose is running. It's nothing, you tell yourself, trying to ignore the crawling sensation on the back of your neck that has nothing to do with the temperature. Whoever lives there just left the door open while they bring in groceries from the car, that's all. No car in the driveway, though, and none in front of the house. The crawling sensation is getting worse. You hesitate for a moment, too and then start walking toward the house. You tell yourself that you shouldn't be doing this, that you should call the police and let them check it out, but you left your cell phone charging on the kitchen counter. If this were one of your stories... But it's not, so you keep going. You don't know who lives here, you haven't been in the neighborhood that long, and truth to tell, you're not the most sociable person in the world, and you feel like an intruder as you start up the driveway. It hasn't been shoveled and your prints are the first since the snow fell. You start across the yard toward the open door and you notice a set of tracks coming from the next house over. They're clear and crisp, which means they're recent. And they lead up to the front door. But there are none coming out, which means whoever made them is still inside. Don't be so sinister, you tell yourself. Someone could have just come over for a visit, and after they went in the owner didn't shut the door tight, and the wind blew it open. Except there is no wind. The air is still. You resist, thinking it's dead. Snow drifting slowly, if not silently, down around you. Now that you're close to the house, you see that the paint on the brick and shutters is old and flaking. The curtains are drawn, so you can't see inside. But you can tell that the glass is coated a dingy yellow. Whoever lives here definitely hasn't earned the good housekeeping seal of approval. You reach the porch, careful not to step on the tracks that are already there, just in case. Just in case what? That they might be evidence? Maybe. You stand there, hesitating, trying to decide what to do next. Do you just pull the door closed and leave? Do you knock and wait to see if someone answers? Do you push the door open a little wider, lean your head in and call out, Hello! Anyone there? Your door is open! While you're trying to decide, you hear something a voice mumbling words you can't make out and the shkt, shkt, shkt of scissors cutting. The sounds are coming from somewhere in the house, of course. Where else? An alarm goes off in your hindbrain, telling you something is wrong, and that now would be an excellent opportunity to prove that discretion really is the better part of valor. But your hand reaches for the doorknob of its own accord. 
You've written about this, people watching as their bodies do things. Walk forward, peer around a corner, grip a doorknob, as if they were no more than puppets and someone else was working the strings. But this is the first time you've experienced it. You push the door open, and by Christ, if you don't step inside, just like one of those moronic characters in cheap-ass horror movies who, as a friend of yours once put it, exist only to get slurped by the glop. You've never had any sympathy for those sacrificial lambs, figuring that anyone who's dumb enough to walk into the house of horror deserves whatever grisly fate awaits them. But now you wonder if they, thinking about them as if they truly existed, are gripped by the same fascination you are, a compulsion really, almost hypnotic in its power, to keep going, despite the fact that all your instincts are screaming, much louder than the snowflakes, to get the hell out of here now. But you don't, because even though you know you shouldn't, like Lot's wife, you have to see. But you smell first, a stink so thick you could take a bite out of it. Once, when you were a teenager, you were mowing the field. You grew up in the country on six and a half acres, which meant a lot of mowing every spring and summer. And you ran over the flattened, yellow, desiccated carcass of a groundhog. You were on a riding mower, and you jammed your foot on the brake, but not in time. Bits of leathery skin and broken bone shot out the mower's side. A truly hellacious stench filled the air, greasy and rank. This smell is worse. John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, bodies buried in the basement sealed in plastic barrels. You're in the foyer, and a glance to your right shows you the living room. Aside from the curtains, which you now see are nothing more than tattered gray sheets hung over the window with nails, the room is bare. No furniture, no carpet. Even the walls are unpainted. The curtains are thin enough to allow some light in. Otherwise, the house is dark. The mumbling is louder now, the shht, shht of the scissors faster, and you become aware of a new sound, the soft mewing of cats. The marionette strings tug at your limbs, and you continue down the foyer to a hallway, turn right, and walk toward the sounds. The rooms have no doors, and the first two you pass are empty, completely so save for more curtain sheets. But the third bedroom, the master you guess from the size, is not. The floor is littered with debris, scattered newspapers, soiled fast food wrappers, and empty styrofoam cups. Tiny black shapes skitter among the trash, and you shudder with revulsion. But the insects are far from the worst. Cats, a dozen at least, maybe more, are gathered around the still form of a man in a mail carrier uniform. He's lying face up on the floor, coat open, his chest and belly covered with wet crimson. There's blood on the floor around him, splattered onto bits of trash, and the cats are lapping it up eagerly, as if they're starving. The mail carrier can't be more than thirty, you guess, though it's hard to say what with all the blood covering his face, and the cats clustered around and on top of him. You've read numerous stories and novels where a character, confronted by something awful beyond imagining, loses control over his bodily functions, and warm urine runs down his legs, soaking his socks and shoes before dribbling onto the floor. You've never used that tired old gag in your own writing, always figured that it was a cheap way to indicate overwhelming fear. But now, even though you don't piss yourself, you understand why someone in this situation might. Oh yes, you do. Sitting on a simple wooden stool in the middle of the room is a grossly overweight man wearing only a muscle t-shirt, spattered with blood, of course, 
and dingy boxer shorts. On his lap is the mail carrier's bag, and he's holding a letter with one sticky wet hand and cutting it in half with a pair of gore-slick scissors. The two halves of the letter fall to the floor to join a pile of other halves. You can make out what the fat man is mumbling now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was awful, and the Word was wonderful, and the Word was death, and the Word must die, must stop, the Word must cut, 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 the Word cut all the words. The man suddenly notices you and looks up. He frowns for a moment, clearly puzzled, but then recognition fills his eyes, and he scowls. Say, aren't you that fellow who just moved in over by the park? The one who makes words? The most awful thing about his voice is that it sounds so normal. No guttural tones or demonic echoes. In a way, this is worse than the empty house. The dead mail carrier, even the ravenous cats, for the fat man doesn't sound like a monster. He could be any man, in any house, in any neighborhood, anywhere. The sheer horror of this realization and now the word horror means so much more to you than it did only a few moments ago, more than just a descriptor in a market listing or label on the spine of a paperback, breaks your trance and you turn and flee the room. The man bellows and you hear the mailbag drop as he stands, hear thrashing as he kicks his way through the debris, hear the protesting rows of the cats getting out of the way, hear the slap, slap, slap of bare feet on uncarpeted floor. And you know he's coming after you, scissors in hand. Of course he is, you think, an edge of hysteria to your thought voice. It wouldn't be much of a story if he didn't. Down the hallway and the foyer, through the front door, onto the porch, leaping over the steps landing in the snow and almost slipping, managing to stay on your feet, then running toward the park, heart pounding in your ears, lungs heaving, breath fogging the air like white smoke. He won't come after you, you tell yourself, not in his underwear and barefooted not in this cold, and not with snow on the ground. You almost make the mistake of slowing down, but then you hear feet smacking the front porch, hear a bestial growl, which strikes you as more appropriate and somehow more comforting than his normal voice. And you know that the fat man doesn't give a good god damn about the cold. He'd run into the park tromping across the tracks you made during your previous crossing, obliterating the raccoon things, too. And do you see out of the corner of your vision? A feral-eyed, fur-covering face staring at you from between a pair of trees? Maybe. You're halfway across now, and although you feel an almost irresistible urge to look behind you and see how close your pursuer is, you don't. The sounds are more than enough to indicate his progress. Pounding feet, harsh breath, his half-growl, half-whine, a mix of anger and frustration. You almost slip as you leap over the curb onto the asphalt of your cul-de-sac and you imagine that he's so close he takes a swipe at you with bloody scissors, blade raking the back of your jacket, but sliding off without cutting, thank Jesus. At least you hope you imagine it. You make it to your front walk and begin bounding up the terraced stone steps. Snowflakes are still falling, but they aren't screaming anymore. They're laughing, laughing their cold crystalline asses off. You reach the door, grip the knob, start to turn it. It's locked. Of course it is. You always lock the door when you leave. Ironic that a basic safety precaution is going to spell your D-O-O-M. You jam your hand into the front pocket of your jeans, but you know you're not going to get your keys out in time, let alone unlock the fucking door. You can't resist any longer, and really, what's the point? 
you turn around and look. If this were one of your stories, you'd see a flash of wild eyes just before sharp scissors plunged into the too soft flesh of your neck. But it's not. The fat man is standing at the edge of the cul-de-sac, scissors gripped in a tight fist, bare feet in the snow unmoving, as if he's encountered an invisible barrier that he cannot cross. His head's cocked to the side, and you realize he's listening to something. The snowflakes fall silently now, and you can hear it too. Barely. A high-pitched, plaintive mewing. His little ones are calling. He looks back toward his house, then he turns to give you a final glare before starting back across the park, muttering to himself as he goes. You don't wait around to watch. You pull out your keys and, gripping them in a trembling hand, unlock the door, practically fall inside, and slam it closed behind you. And yes, you lock it. You slide to the floor and sit there, your back against the door until your breathing slows to something approaching normal. You stand up. Those marionette strings at work again. Take off your coat and hang it in the closet. Then you walk into the living room and look at the phone sitting on a stand by the entertainment center. You should call the police and tell them what you've seen. You really should. But instead, you walk across the carpet into the dining room, sit down at the table in front of your laptop, and start to type. So, how did you kill us this time? Startled, you look up from the computer screen. You hadn't realized your wife had come home. You glance over and see your three-year-old daughter sitting on the floor in front of the entertainment center watching a cartoon. You have no memory of them coming inside the house or of the TV being turned on. You're used to getting lost in your work, but not quite this lost. Your wife goes on. Are we eaten by rotting zombies, gutted by a deranged killer, devoured from the inside out by alien parasites? She's smiling, but there's a coldness in her voice. Your endings, often featuring the deaths of a mother and child, have become an issue between the two of you over the years. You've told her that you don't know why you do it, that maybe it's because their deaths are the worst thing you can think of, and that's what horror should be about, right? But she's never bought it, and truth to tell, neither have you. You try to smile. You'll be happy to know that you and Jenny aren't even in this one. Oh? A hint of curiosity in her voice, and she leans over your shoulder to peer at the screen. You're always uncomfortable with people reading your work before it's finished, but all you say is, It's not done yet. I still need to think of an ending. She finishes reading the text on the screen and looks at you, a skeptical eyebrow raised. A crazy shut-in and cats? You sigh. You're right. It's stupid. Your fingers move across the keyboard and you delete the file without saving it. Before your wife can protest, you say, It's no big deal. It was just something I was playing around with. Your wife leans over, gives you a kiss on the top of your head, and disappears into the kitchen. Your daughter giggles at something on the TV. You don't look up to see what it is. Instead, you stare at the blank white on the laptop's display, as stark and barren as an arctic snowfield, and you reach out and press your fingertips to the screen. Please, you whisper, let me in. For an instant, you feel the plastic begin to yield, grow soft and welcoming, but then it becomes firm once more, impenetrable in the truest, most awful sense of the word. Your wife calls from the kitchen. Hey, hon, would you like to see what I picked up at the hardware store on my way home? Tears well from your eyes, slide down your cheeks, become snowflakes as they fall to the keyboard and melt. You sense movement behind you, 
and the side of your head explodes with pain and a surprised chuff of air escapes your lips. Though you can barely think through the agony blazing in your skull, you realize that something has hit you on the head, something hard, and you turn to see what it is, too dazed to think of doing anything else. You see your wife holding a hammer, eyes wild, teeth bared in a cruel grin. How's this for an ending of your piece of shit story? She screams and swings the hammer at your forehead, far too fast for you to even think about ducking. A bright flash erupts behind your eyes. The blow is so hard that it spins your head back around and you slump forward on the laptop's keyboard. You hear your daughter laughing in delight and clapping her hands. Hit him again, Mommy! Hit him again! The computer screen is splattered with red and you can hardly see the line of letters on the display. Letters created when your cheek hit the keys. It's difficult to focus your eyes so close to the screen, especially with the gray haze nibbling at the edge of your vision. But you read the text some of it obscured by blood. A-N-F-O-R-K-O-M-Y-U-H-V-V-B-X-U-H-J-N-C-K-O-P. Well, your wife says with satisfaction, what do you think of my ending? Darkness rushes in like an ebb and wave and you answer her with your final thought. It's been done. As the black closes in, you reach over with trembling fingers. Turn off the laptop. And the word goes. Slurped by the glop. Yep. That's what happens to the people we love when they fester to fiction in our heads and in our hands. As mentioned, stop by Tim's Amazon author's site and get an idea of the range of his work. And thanks again for the use of the story, Tim. Portrait of a Horror Writer was read for us tonight by Jonathan Danz. Of himself, Jonathan says he is a purveyor of digital services by day and a ravenous consumer of the printed word by night. In the gray hours, he may be found at the keyboard crafting his own words, novels, short stories, and so forth. Jonathan also says he lives on the edge, the edge of the New River Gorge, that is. That is in West Virginia. The edge on which he lives is shared by his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. If the mood strikes, you may touch base with him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandanz.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-D-A-N-Z dot com. Okay. Some instructions for while we're gone. It's only two weeks or so, so you'll be fine. You don't have to feed the cat or take in the newspaper. If you are new to Tales to Terrify, there are 106 shows in the archive. Go, delve, discover gems you never knew existed that you wanted to hear again or were always curious about. Go discover Martin Munt, for example, or Alexei Collier, B.C. Bell, Mike Pincus. 
Reacquaint yourselves with M. R. James, or get to know William Hope Hodgson. Go, fill up on H. P. Lovecraft. There's a lot in the archive. And, of course, if you are a horror writer, or any kind of writer, write. And if you have a novel or a story you'd like to share, spend the time you'd normally spend here in the nook and put ten terrifying minutes from the novel or story into an audio file and send it to us at... Got pen and paper? Tales to Terrify, all one word, at gmail.com. In the audio, include something about yourself and let us know what we need to know to fully grasp the horrors in your ten terrifying minutes, which is what you should put on the subject line of your email. Ten terrifying minutes. Oh, the things you'll do in the next few weeks. But don't forget us. We will be back. You can always stop by and touch base on Facebook. Let us know how we're doing and what you'd like to hear in the new year. And again, I want to thank everyone who's been with us through our first 106 weeks. And thank you if you voted for us in this and last year's This Is Horror Awards season. I don't know when we'll hear how we did, but thank you for your consideration. And thank you, too, if you were one of those who helped get David Bradshaw to write a song for Tales to Terrify in the recent Kickstarter program. Thank you. And thank you, David. And now, children of the night, I would have you be upstanding. Wrap yourselves. Make sure you've got everything you brought with you. All three gloves, a sufficiency of muffs for all ears your scarves, at all. There'll be no return for several weeks, and several weeks can bring buckaroo weather this time of year. So, I thank you for coming. To Celia and Mahler, thank you. And on your way home, be careful of what you look at in the shadow places. It's not what's already in there that can jump out and get you, no, no. It's what you put there from your own dark heart that can really cause the harm. Take that home with you, children of the night. And for the next few weeks, have nothing but pleasant dreams. Hmm? I see trees of green too. I see them blue for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The color.
colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky Are also on the faces Of people going by I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do They're really saying I love you I hear babies cry to myself What a wonderful world Yes I think to myself What a wonderful This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.